welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, we are very privileged today to talk to somebody in our our body who is going out onto the mission field. And, and you know, we did this a couple weeks ago with Holly, and it's just a, a cool thing that God is doing in, in our small body of believers and that there is this excitement that the mercy and the love of God would be seen throughout the entire world. So and there are ways that, that we support this um, by bringing them up so that they can kind of share what's going on and we can hear that. We took an offering uh, a couple weeks ago with Holly just to kind of do that. And, and I told you guys last week we raised like $1,500, so that was awesome. Um, Rebecca is going to Haiti. Uh, Rebecca Tolopilo, some of you guys may uh, know Rebecca. And we are going to just be giving her prayer support because you're, it's a short-term trip, correct? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> These are, we're going to ask yes and no questions. It's going to be really in, engaging. Uh, <laughs> uh, Rebecca said, you have to, I, I only want to be up there for a short amount of time. So like 15, 20 minutes is, yeah, right. Um, now Rebecca is going to Haiti and uh, Rebecca is the daughter of uh, Marcelo and Val, who Marcelo is going to be teaching today and, and blessing us with the word. Um, I wanted to give Rebecca just a little bit of time to say, or tell us about what you're doing uh, how you, you kind of got connected with the organization that's going over there, um, what the plan is over there, and how we can be praying for that, and then, of course, the dates that you're going so we know when to pray. All right, so I'm Rebecca. Um, I'm going to be going to Haiti March 30th through April 5th. It's a week-long trip, and I'm going to be going with actually a medical team um, through the Haiti Endowment Fund, which is a nonprofit Christian organization ministering in Haiti. Um, I got connected actually through my work. The doctor that I work for is a strong Christian man, and uh, that's how I heard about these trips. So this will be my third time. Um, and what what I really appreciate about the Haiti Endowment Fund is the missionaries that they support are actually local Haitian pastors. So um, even though they send teams from stateside to help support the church there, the ministry goes on year-round through the pastor ministering to the local community. So the medical team is just one small part of what they do there. Um, so I'm going to be going down for a week. The pastors, before we come, they hand out tickets to the local community for a day medical clinic. So we go to their village for a day, like a different village each day. And we basically see hundreds of people there. Um, but we're basically, we get to be the hands and feet of the church to the community. So um, in terms of prayer, just pray that as we minister to their physical needs, that we would be aware of the spiritual need and take that opportunity to reach out to them with the gospel in that way. Um, also just pray that even as we head home, that the work that we do there will be used as a springboard for the gospel through the local pastor as he reaches out to the community and follows up uh, our time there with those who were able to come and participate. So, yeah. All right, well, let's, let's pray for Rebecca right now. 
Lord, we lift up Rebecca and your work in Haiti. Uh, Lord, the whole team that's going, but Lord, I just pray that um, you would give my sister just opportunity to share your love and your mercy, Lord, not just through physical healing, Lord, but through the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use this team to draw people in, um, that they would become aware of the churches there, uh, Lord, that they would become connected to the, the body of Christ that is uh, worshiping and growing in you there. Um, Lord, I pray that Rebecca would have safe travel. Uh, Lord, that you would keep her healthy and, and strong as she is there for the week. Lord, I pray for us, Lord, that you would be bringing through your spirit, Lord, just remembrance to lift her up in prayer, uh, Lord, as she is there. Uh, Father, I just pray that um, that lives would change, uh, Lord, that, that you would encourage Rebecca as she is there, uh, as she gets to be your hands. Um, Lord, I pray that the people that she comes in contact with, Lord, would just be encouraged as well, and, and that they would not just receive the, the physical healing, Lord, but that they would understand what's, what's driving her to be there and, and why she wants to, to go out and, and heal the world because of you, Lord, that, that that's just a, a deeper healing that we need and, and just a, this, the sin in our lives and our separation from Christ. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would bless her trip and, uh, Lord, that you would be glorified through it. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. All right. All right. Um, if you guys want to turn to John 21, uh, Marcelo is going to be teaching today. Um, if you guys don't know Marcelo, you're about to be blessed, and you don't even know it. It's going to be like you're going to get, like, like an uppercut, a spiritual uppercut to the jaw that you didn't expect. But, like, it's a good thing. Yeah, but a good one. John 21, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in, because the quantity of fish that the disciples whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was uh, the Lord, he put his outer garment, he put off or put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got, <clears throat> when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And all the, although there were so many, the net was to torn. <laughs> although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus revealed was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God. Good morning. 
I'm going to put this over here. I don't want to put it on the Lord's table, put the coffee there. It's a little tacky. Um, I have coffee here, something warm, because sometimes my I have allergies, and I already apologized to you guys for how that's going to make me cough and sputter all throughout the time. So please, please forgive me, but something warm sometimes helps calm down my throat a bit. Anyway, uh, good morning and happy Palm Sunday to everybody. This is Palm Sunday, right? Yeah. It's a Sunday before Easter. It's a great day. It's a great day. And we're going to skip ahead just a little bit to uh, John 21. Uh, Eric is going to pick that up later on a few weeks down the road, I, I do believe. so. But I felt compelled to go there because of the message that I wanted to uh, communicate to us all this morning. And so with that in mind, let's first just uh, go to the Lord again and settle our hearts and uh, be open vessels, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for David and the guys orchestrating all the sound and all the technical things. Thank you for the people taking care of the little ones and the older ones. And Lord, it's all a, a, an orchestration of service that pleases you, Lord. And we thank you for giving us the opportunity. We pray right now that you would also just bless the teaching of your word and that you would change us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've seen this. I've, I've seen a, a post that Eric put up a few weeks ago, but I thought he, he did a meme. He superimposed it, but he has uh, John 12, 21 here, the little part of the verse, you know, where the Greeks come seeking out Jesus. And right now they're proselytes. They're, they're approaching a Jewish Messiah, and their appeal to the disciples is basically, sir, we would we wish to see Jesus, and uh, that's pretty cool. I, I can tell you that that's what Eric, by the power of the Spirit, attempts to do every week. And he asked me earlier this week. He he said, "If could you just give me a line that kind of describes your message for Sunday?" And I thought about it, and then I came up with this. I guess a, a, this would be a title, right? Uh, not just a line. Um, it, I would title it, you could title this passage, The Truth in It, The Persevering Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's more than just a simple title, isn't it? That, that, that's a, a profound biblical truth. Because God's grace perseveres. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is a persevering grace. It endures, it remains steadfast in and through all times. And were it not for this persevering grace of God, our failures and our bumblings and our silliness and our disobedience would overcome and overwhelm us. There's probably all kinds of people in, in, here in terms of your, your journey in Christ. But whether you've been a disciple of Jesus Christ for a very long time or a short time, to anybody who's been a disciple of Christ, you know that we too often suffer from that chronic wayward tendency described by the hymn writer when he wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We all wander in so many ways, don't we? So many ways. 
Sometimes it's the tyranny of the urgencies of life. You know, we get so wrapped up in doing what needs to get done. We get so busy with life that we're literally pulled away from the one thing that is necessary, like Martha in Luke chapter 10, where she was pulled away from Christ, from his fellowship, from growing in her knowledge of him and loving him. Sometimes it's not the urgencies of life, but we succeed in vocation, in parenting even, in in ministry, and we become somewhat intoxicated by our own success. And we find ourselves, again, pulled away from the Lord, listing and wandering and straying. And yet at other times, we just sin with a high hand, don't we? We know what the will of the Lord is. We know what his voice by the Spirit tells us through the scriptures. And yet we flat out, outright sin. And I guess whatever the cause of our wondering, the the amazing thing of it all is that the grace of Jesus Christ perseveres through it all. And if we had the presence of mind, guys, to look to Jesus through the scriptures as he is presented there, if we had the presence of mind to look to him from the moment that we sin, from the moment that we stray, we would see Jesus with his arms extended out, not pushing us away, but palms in saying, come home. Ready, willing, able, powerful to restore us. John Newton had it right. It is what? An amazing grace, right? And I think the older we get in the faith, the more we walk with Jesus, we realize that that is more and more a reality. In fact, John Newton at 82 said, this is, you know, the former slave trader turned pastor radically saved. He said, uh, my memory is nearly gone now. But I remember two things. One, that I am a great sinner. And two, that Christ is a great savior. And this amazing grace, guys, never tires, it never wears out, it doesn't become threadbare, it remains as vigorous and robust as the very Lord, the faithful Lord who gives it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is a persevering grace. And I, I want us to see this persevering grace this morning in a very... A very neat passage. I want, we're going to see it clearly in the life of one of the Lord's choicest servants, the Apostle Peter. He, of course, was one of the inner three. He was the leader of the disciples. And Peter's life acts as a wonderful backdrop to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because Peter, as we all know probably, was a man that is known as much for not just his, uh, his spiritual triumphs but also for his earthly blunders, Right? Peter is a man who failed miserably. He was triumphantly, you know, victorious many times, but he also failed miserably, and I might add also uh, visibly. You know, you and I kind of get to, if it's a blessing at all, we get to, you know, fail somewhat privately before our family, before our friends, before a select group of people in the body of Christ. Peter has the dubious distinction of failing for the divine record. Okay, and his failures get plastered all over the pages of the world's all-time bestseller. I'm sure he's probably in heaven going, okay, it's Palm Sunday. They're going to go over how I, you know, failed again. 
I don't think he's doing that. That wouldn't be heaven, right? But because of that, because he was a flawed man, his life serves as a tutor to point us to Christ. And today I want to see that in John 21. If you haven't turned there, please do. <laughs> John chapter 21, we're going to kind of do a jet tour and focus in on, on a handful of service, uh, verses. But if you go back and you look at the Lord's predictions of his resurrection, he told them several times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to rise again. If you look at the Lord's predictions of the resurrection, he told them that he would meet them after the resurrection in Galilee. In fact, Matthew 28, 16 tells us that there was a specific mountain on which they were to wait for Jesus. We don't know anything else of this place. Maybe it was a place where they had often uh, debriefed after ministry, where they had prayed together, broken bread together, and fellowship together. We don't know. But they were literally under direct orders from Jesus Christ, not just to park it in Galilee, but to, to go through Galilee and to that mountain in Galilee. They had a specific rendezvous point. And so after all the events of the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate next week, uh, the Lord had appeared to them, all of them. The disciples began their long journey from Jerusalem, which is in the south of, of Israel, to Galilee in the north, about 70 miles. <clears throat> and they hoofed it, all right? So it takes a long time to travel 70 miles by foot. Would you agree? So that's a lot of time to think. You know, when I go out for a power walk, and not, not only to exercise, but it helps me think and pray. And sometimes good ideas come in, sometimes bad ideas come in. But you got to remember that these disciples have been through a whirlwind of experience. They have probably eaten irregularly. They have missed several nights sleep. They have seen the resurrected Lord, but they have also denied Christ. They have deserted Christ in his hour of greatest need. And so there's a mixed bag of emotions. And as they made their way from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north, in that long walk, I believe that discouragement and doubt began to invade the minds of the disciples, especially Peter. That's why, by the way, that's the only way that I can explain this chapter. Because the disciples are reluctant, they're hesitant, they're timorous. Jesus appears to them, they know it's Jesus after a little while, but nobody dare says, hey Lord, how you doing? They're sheepish. They're, they're, they're beaten up. So I believe doubt and less than full compliance to the Lord's command began to infiltrate their lives here. So I think you can understand this. I mean, uh, Peter has denied the Lord personally, publicly three times. That left a scar. We know from Luke 32 verses, uh, or 22 verses 31 and 32 that Satan himself requested permission from God to rattle Peter's cage. And the implication is that Jesus allowed him to do that to a degree. He had him on a chain just like with Job, right? But uh, he's been rattled by the most evil, powerful being, the most powerful evil being in the universe, Peter is, is limping along. And I don't know if you've gotten to the place where you're weary of failing the Lord. 
Maybe it's in a particular area. You've, uh, you know, you, you've heard your own self to see chatter too many times and you're tired, tired of it and you feel morally weak perhaps. I think that's the mindset that we find Peter in. Peter was a man that had been beaten up by life in the last few months. It was hard. and He was fearing for his life for that matter. A hard time. And what compounded this was the fact that Peter was not one of the social religious elite. He was not an educated man. He, he was a Galilean what? Fisherman, right? That, that's like the bottom rung on the ladder of Jewish culture. In fact, Alfred Edersheim in his great work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, points out in great detail how the Judean Jews, especially the ruling class, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priestly family, the priestly families in general, the Sanhedrin, which those were the guys that Peter and the apostles were going head-to-head with, these guys absolutely despised the Galileans. They were an accursed people in their mind because they were ignorant, they were simple. And Peter was an uneducated fisherman. He was not a rabbi by training. And I think this exposure to this kingdom business over the last three years had absolutely revealed every flaw in his battered character. And I think at this point, he was a man, if not fully convinced, but pretty close, that he was inept to serve Jesus Christ. And then as they entered entered Galilee and began to mix with their old surroundings, they probably stayed at Bethsaida, the home of Peter, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, they, they ate with their families. They strolled the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They handled their own old nets. They, they handled their old boats. They smelled the distinct aroma of their fishing village and then watched the boats part way for another day of fishing. And then in a melancholy moment, I think two things became clear to Peter. One, I'm not a rabbi. <laughs> two, I am a fisherman. That's what I've done. That's what, that's how I fed my family. That's what my fathers have done. That's what I know how to do. I'm, I'm not a rabbi. And being a vocal guy that wore his heart out on his sleeve, he probably express, expressed it to the other guys and he said, guys, you know, I don't know if I'm a, a preacher guy, but I know how to fish. And I'm going back to fish. In fact, the, verse, uh, the, the verb here in verse 3 is a very definitive verb. It's a very decisive action. I'm going back to this, to this life. And this wasn't the mountain on which they were to wait for the Lord. This was the lake of Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias. So they were at least in a state of less than perfect obedience. I believe they were directly defying the command of the Lord. Instead of going through Galilee to the their rendezvous point in that mountain, they disobeyed the Lord's command and got diverted to another place. And uh, I just want you to understand that there's, there, there's a reason to believe that here textually. For one, they didn't go back for some leisurely fishing, right? Verse seven says Peter was stripped for work. This is what he did for a living. Uh, Verse 3 says that I'm going back to fishing. I'm going literally, I'm being pulled away to fishing. In other words, he went back decisively to his old job. It's a present active infinitive. This is a decisive action, as I said. 
What's more, the word boat in verse 3 has a definite article suggesting that this was Simon Peter's old fishing boat. It was the boat. So they went back to a lifestyle. And that doesn't mean that they had rejected Christ. They just were confused and hurting. But, and they went back to what was easy for them to do, what brought them security. I don't know if you've ever been there. But this was their fallback system. Instead of going to where the Lord wanted them to go, they fell back to what came easy. And that's why the Lord in verse 15 says to Peter, you know, hey, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? The these there is a reference to his fishing boat, to his nets, to his life. Do you love me more than what brings you security? And so they found themselves in a place where they were disregarding the Lord's direct command. And when we find ourselves doing something that is not optimum or not what the Lord wants us to do, the results are fairly predictable. Look at verse 3. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught what? Nothing. Uden in the Greek. It means nothing, not at all. You can't even catch a cold. (laughs) You can't eat nothing, right? It doesn't sell well either. Unless you're a politician. <laughs> and pardon my cynicism right now, the political discourse has kind of left me wishing I were Canadian, <laughs> at least for the next few months. But uh, anyway, they, they didn't catch anything. Now let me ask you a question. Why didn't they catch anything? You want to know why? Very simple. Because they had no business being there, fishing. The resurrected Lord of glory told them, meet me at this specific plan place. And guys, I've got great plans for y'all. We're going to change the world. I'm going to give you a message that's going to change the world. And then it's going to culminate with you guys in my kingdom sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to be princes of your people. You're going to change the world. And what do they do? They opt out for fish. They basically say, hmm, let's see. Change the world, turn it on its heel, rule from the thrones of Jerusalem, or fish. I'll do the fish. (laughs) You know, when the Almighty calls us to a task in Scripture, guys, how, how silly it is for us to say to the Lord, thanks for those suggestions, but I've got better plans. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we really do that all the time, don't we? It's called sin. You've heard the rationalizing, the the reasoning that goes on in your mind when the Lord is prompting you to obedience through the word of God. And you're thinking, perhaps these thoughts have gone through your mind. It's like, oh yeah, Lord, I know you want me to share Christ with my colleague, with my workmate, but it, it just would be a breach of etiquette. And you know, plus I'm not the preaching type, but that's a really good idea for somebody. Or, Lord, yes, I know you want me to love my wife, but quite frankly, you don't have to live with her. (laughs) Or, Or my husband. Or, yes, Lord, I know you want me to serve. 
And I will someday, but right now I'm in those middle income earning years. I really got to sock it away for the future. I'd love to help, but I just can't right now. Call me in about 20 years and I'll be a dynamo for you though. Do it. Or perhaps you're faced with a familiar temptation and you feel the Spirit's prompting to flee. You say, Lord, I'm not flirting with this. I'm just curious. And Lord, really, I, I, I'm capable of better behavior. Trust me. What self-deceived and fruitless things we do. You know, the disciples were disobeying the Lord. They had a better plan. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. You know, if the Lord were not gracious, the text would probably read, and they went out and got into the boat, and that night they were all swallowed by a giant sea bass. Came out of nowhere. And they were digested and became part of the sedimentary layers of the Sea of Galilee. And today you would have some huckster selling you anointed apostle dirt from the bottom of the Sea of Tiberias, right? Neighbor, just give me a seed faith gift of whatever, you know. I call it little pieces of Peter. Something crazy. But here's a spoiler alert. That's not what happened, is it? That's not what happened. That's not how it rolled out. Why? Because the grace of Jesus Christ perseveres. That's why. (laughs) That day, it's not what happened. Verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, guess who's there? Jesus. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus And I want you to just think about this for a little bit. Kind of set the the stage in your own mind. They have literally been slaving away for nothing all night. Working, 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 not a nibble. And they're getting frustrated. They're tired. They're cold. And as the sun begins to inch its way up the horizon, it begins to highlight their frustrated faces. And they're about 100 yards away, according to verse 8, 200 cubits stands a solitary figure whom they do not recognize and who asks one very annoying question. (laughs) Look at the question. Jesus, verse 5, therefore said to them, children! And just an aside, that's a term of endearment. That's what a chief rabbi would call his pupils, his devoted pupils. That's what a daddy would call his son. Or little kids, or little ones, little children, little ones by, by day. Come, children. He doesn't say you bunch of stiff neck deaf eared guys. I've dealt with your forefathers in the desert and for all these years, and you are no different. He says, children, you, here's the question, you do not have any fish, do you? Do you think the Lord knew? Of course he knew. He's trying to highlight the futility of their waywardness. He he did the same thing when he, he veils himself here and he asks a rhetorical question that they have to answer so that they can see what their problem is. He did the same thing in Luke 24 when the two disciples are walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're all sad and heartbroken because their rabbi, who's a great prophet died 
and was killed by their own people, the chief priests. And they're just busted up about this, right? The thing that you learn from the text is that Jesus is already risen. The women have already seen him and reported it, and he's appeared to Peter, and still they refuse to believe in the law and the prophets and the words of Jesus. And so Jesus disguises himself, and he says, hey, so what is it that you guys are exchanging with one another as you're walking along the way? Who are you talking about? And it says they stopped, literally, dead in their tracks. They stopped looking sad. And they said to this stranger, did you just fall off the turnip truck? Turnip truck? I mean, they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened? But what's worse is that they say he's risen again, but we're just going home. Same similar or similar situation as we, we find here. Jesus knew the answer to this. He wanted them to see what they were doing. And they answered him, no, rhetorical question, short answer. <coughs> it's, it's, pardon me, it's recorded in the plural. I find that interesting. They probably said it in unison. <laughs> no! You get a feeling that they might have been just a tad bit on the hungry side, you know, hangry, just no food, all work, no, you know, too much coffee kind of thing. And Peter probably muttering under his breath, who is that guy? You want fish? Go to a deli! But what the Lord is doing here is he's setting them up to reveal himself, to reveal their waywardness, and to draw him to his side. And so we have this wonderful group of verses from verse 6 through 14 that really display for us the amazing, persevering grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pick it up with verse 6. And he said to them, now, remember, he's on, on the seashore, right? About 100 yards away. So he's calling this out to them. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat. And Peter's going, what did he say? I think he said, cast the pet on the right side of the boat. No, he couldn't have said that. That makes no sense. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. And that sounds strangely familiar to them. And then they cast the nets, and what happened? And they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And all of a sudden, the lights begin to go on. This has got to be the Lord. Remember a similar event in Luke chapter 5, at the beginning of the Lord's ministry? He just finished preaching to the people. He, he was standing in Simon Peter's boat just offshore so that he could create some space between he and the crowd. He finishes his discourse. It's noonday, and he tells Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter says, first of all, Lord, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. I don't know how these guys made a living, quite honestly. But <laughs> we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. And uh, you're a rabbi. You deal with books. I'm a fisherman. I deal with nets. You know, this is a terrible time to go fishing because fish go deep at, when the water gets hot. They come up early in the morning and late at night to, to to eat, to feed in the cooler waters. But in the middle of the day, it's no good. And they've already been fishing in the best part of the day and they've caught nothing. But Peter basically says, in deference to you, Rabbi, Rabbi will put out. Not one to bicker. And they put out. And Jesus tells them exactly where to drop the nets and what happens. All of a sudden, there's tension in the nets. And they begin to wriggle and jiggle and tear just a little bit. And that old little boat is creaking and moaning. And they have such a huge catch of fish, they have to call their other friends with boats. And it says they filled their boats and they all began to sink. 
So either they can't catch anything or they're catching enough to sink their boats. You know, I don't get it. But when Peter saw this little sliver of the glory of the Lord Jesus in this miracle, it says that when he saw that, he, he crumpled at the Lord's feet and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus said to him, hey, don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid. You think that's good? You think that was a good catch? He goes, but from now on, you're not going to be fishing for fish, but you're going to be fishing for men. And then verse 11 of Luke chapter 5 gives us that amazing response by the disciples that says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. What's everything? Their boats, their nets, their tackle, their catch. They left everything, it says, and they followed him. Isn't that great? Yet what are they doing in John 21? They've gone back to their nets. They've gone back to their boats, to their fishing, to the things that they find secure. Gives them security. And it's really the contrast couldn't be greater, right? The Lord is saying, meet me at that mountain. I'm going to give you the great commission. We're going to turn this world on its heel. We're going to change history. We're going to redeem men for eternity. These guys are willing to trade all that for fish. They cast, therefore, and they were not able to haul it in, just like in Luke 5, because of the great number of fish. All of a sudden, the lights begin to go on for these guys, right? It's got to be the Lord. Who else can command nature? It's got to be the Lord. Verse 7. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. They probably all, at the same time, thought, whose stupid idea was to be in this boat? And then the next thing we know, Peter's jumping out of the boat. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work. That is, he put on his coat to go swimming. Just saying. And then he threw himself into the sea. Hmm. Threw himself into the sea. He doesn't say he dove. You know, he probably wasn't really concerned about the judges' score for style, but he threw himself into the sea and he was anxious to get back to shore. He was in a hurry to get back to land. Let me ask you, why was he in such a hurry to get back to shore? You want to know why? Because he wanted to get back to him. He wanted to get back to Jesus. That's the point I want you to see. The minute Peter realized that it was the Lord, he jumped out of that boat he had no business being in, and he wanted to get back to Jesus Christ. He wanted to get right with Jesus Christ. He wanted to be restored. He wanted to be put in the place of blessing. And you can say a lot of stuff about Peter because he failed so visibly, right? But as quickly as this man sinned, one of the most redeeming qualities of this man was that as quickly as he sinned, just as quickly, he wanted to be restored to the Savior. From the moment he realized, I'm out of step with Christ, I need to get in step with him. And that quality is what endeared him to the Lord so much, I think, and, listen to me, made him usable. That's a sign of a fruitful Christian. It's not that he or she does not sin. It is that when they do sin, they can't wallow in it. They can't relish it. They have to, they have to strip that stuff off and they have to get clean. They have to go back to Jesus. 
And that's what we find Peter doing here. Verse 8. But the other disciples, by the way, this is a one-point sermon, the persevering grace of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed that. I think this is just what this chapter talks about. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were about not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Now just stop there and again set the context for yourselves. The Lord is dealing with these guys. He's dealing with them from shore. He's dealing with them in a state of disobedience. And the disciples are there grunting away at this huge haul of fish, you know, which are buoyed by the water, but at the same time they're acting as a huge anchor, right? And Peter is swimming with his coat on just a few yards ahead of them, just flailing away at the water, exhausting himself, probably wishing the Lord would remember that walking on water gig they did a while back and (laughs) help him out, but that's not the way it rolled. And he's dealing with these men who are coming to him in a state of disobedience. And I find that amazing, and I find that actually encouraging because these are the apostles the future apostles. These guys are going to have 12 thrones. The foundation stones of the new Jerusalem will have their names there. They're going to be up there with David and and the great prophets. I mean, these are the apostles, but the disciples at this point have, even though they've been the recipients of, of immense privilege, they're disobedient. But these guys have, let's, let's face it, they have been with Jesus for three years. You can believe God incarnate is your personal tutor. Your rabbi is God himself. Three years, they ate with them and slept with them and traveled with them and and they got to see all those miracles. This wasn't psychogenic functional disease. This was true organic disease. And Eric has been pointing that out as we've been working our way through John. Right in chapter 10, he opens the eyes of a blind man that has a congenital defect. He's been blind since birth. He has never seen. And God the Son touches him with that spittle that he made with mud, rubs his eyes, he goes to, to the pool of Bethesda, Bethesda, that one. And I'm not even going to try. I just need to move on. I'm running out of time. He washes and he sees. Chapter 11, he goes to Lazarus's home. And Lazarus has been dead for four days and he wants to, he says, roll away the, the tomb or the stone that's blocking the door of the tomb. And Martha says, don't do it because the smell is going to be overwhelming, Lord. Jesus says, do it anyway. And he calls Lazarus out and Lazarus comes out alive and whole. He walks into the little town of Nain and he walks right into a funeral procession. They're taking the son of a widow, the only son of a widow. She's left all alone in her old age. And this young man is in the coffin. They're taking him to bury him. And Jesus is filled with compassion. He walks up to the coffin, touches it, and the young man sits up. Probably thinking, so uh, where are we going? (laughs) I'm feeling pretty good. (laughs) But amazing miracles, right? Just amazing stuff. They've seen all of that. Three of these guys, including Peter, have seen the transfiguration. That means they not only saw the incarnate Christ and the resurrected Christ, but the glorified Christ. Billions of people have lived on this planet. Three people have seen that. 
Now, for us in heaven, this will be common fare, right? We'll see the glory of God and his son all the time. We'll stand in it. We'll swim in it. But for human beings this side of heaven, this is ridiculously amazing. All of the disciples by this time have seen him after the resurrection. This is the third appearance of the Lord. So they've been with him, talked with him, eaten with him, you know, just walked with him, asked him questions after the resurrection. And according to 1 Corinthians 15.5 and Luke 24.34, the Lord singled out Peter for special encouragement when he walked out of the grave. He says, I got to go see Peter first. I got to encourage that guy. He denied me three times. I got to restore him. Amazing privilege. And yet after all that, what do these guys do? They disobey a simple command. I mean, go out and sit on a rock and wait for me does not qualify as one of the greatest spiritual challenges of church history. This is not go out and get burned at the stake. That would come later, actually. The Lord would ask them to drink the same cup that he drank. But this is just go out and wait, and I've got instructions. Great news for you guys. And they disobey a simple command. And you would expect the Lord to therefore be waiting on shore because nobody consulted me about what he should do. This is what I would tell him. I would tell him, you have a lecture waiting. You have a willow switch. You, you've got your right to be angry, Lord. This is righteous anger. You can be red-faced, carotids in flame, steam venting from your nostrils, dark as his path on the wings of the storm kind of thing. And just crack into them. And they can, I've had it with you guys. I should have gone with that Phi Beta Kappa group from Judea, and I choose you, and look at what happens. Right? You would expect the Lord to be waiting for them and with a speech and to put them in their place, like like you know, like a parent does sometimes with their kids, rightfully so. You guys need to stop goofing around, sit down. Yet what do we find? Look at verses nine through thirteen. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw the Lord and he was really mad, and he cracked his whip in midair and said, I've had it with you guys. That that's not in your Bible? Okay, because it's not there. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw, what did they see? A charcoal fire already laid and fish placed upon it and bread. These guys have worked through the night. What is this? This is the the break of day, so what is it? It's breakfast. You know, these guys had some deep spiritual needs. They needed to get right with Christ. But before Christ instructs them, he says, man, these guys have some physical needs too, right? Oh, they were cold, hungry, and discouraged. Jesus meets them with a fire, breakfast, and a kind word. Children, children. I think that's amazing. And that's the way Jesus deals with us. We sometimes have this view of him as an angry potentate, but he's a loving master. And then it says, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. He he says, you know, give me some of the fish. Here's what I find amazing. There's debate among scholars as to whether he created the fish or he fished for the fish. And it's like, yeah, doesn't really matter all that much. You know, but I think he created it, just ex nihilo. 
But here's the thing that I find most intriguing that nobody talks about is like, he's God Almighty. Why didn't he create enough? You know, if he created the fish, he fed the 5,000, the 4,000 was probably more like 25 and 30 or whatever, with the women and children included. Why didn't he create enough? You know what I think it is? Well, let me ask you another question. You ask a question to answer a question. How many of you like to fish? How many of you have been fishing in your life? Okay, most of you here have been fishing at some point or another. Do you just take that fish and then just say, oh, good, you put it in the firing pan and that's, you start to eat it? Unless you're golem. <laughs> that doesn't work, right? What do you do? What do you have to do with fish? You, you got you to gotta clean them. So you take a knife and you make an incision from the tail fin up to the gills and then you cut half the head off just enough so you can pull all the guts out and you clean out the blood and all the goop and then you wash them and then you put them on the grill, right? Here's what I find amazing. This is God Almighty. Panto Grato. Melech HaOlam, the king of the universe. The resurrected Christ. And he gets down and dirty with these fish and he cleans them for his men and then he places them on the grill and serves them breakfast. You know, the, the self-emptying of Christ, he may have laid aside his divine prerogatives, you know, Philippians 2 talks about that, but his humility is still a part of his character and virtue. And he serves his men. I need to move on, but just look at verse 13. We're going to skip a few things along the way here, but verse 13 is amazing to me. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. If you've got a New American Standard like I have, you'll notice a little asterisk by the, by the verbs came, took, gave. That's because even though that those verbs are translated in the present tense or in the past tense to make it read more fluid for us, they're actually in the present tense in the original manuscript in the Greek. And it's called the use of the historical present. It's the author's way of bringing people or reading about this event after it happened, bringing them into the event and story itself. And so the text literally reads, Jesus comes and takes the bread and gives them and the fish likewise. You know what John is saying? Jesus was their waiter. Get a load of this, he says. Come into this experience. Set yourself down by the fire. Jesus comes and takes the bread and gives them. So it was Jesus who came after his wayward disciples. It was Jesus who calls them to shore. It was Jesus who has breakfast waiting for them. It is Jesus who invites them to breakfast, and then it is Jesus who serves them breakfast. Isn't he marvelous? He's amazing. And he's the one that is offended. This is what he does for us, guys. He perseveres in his grace. The apostle Peter, you know, basically in Matthew 16, affirmed the deity of Christ. You know, Jesus said, do you, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said that, Heaven and earth, I mean, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Simon, son of Jonah, but my father is in heaven has revealed this to you. And Jesus said, you're speaking for God. And Peter promoted himself to the front of the class. 
And then Jesus began to teach them at that point, look, but I have to go to Jerusalem and I have to suffer many things and I will betrayed, be betrayed by our own people and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise on the third day. And Peter steps in since he had just promoted himself to the head of the class. And he literally said, this cross stuff, God forbid it, Lord. May God disallow you from going to the cross. In fact, he uses the double negative, ooh, may, no, not ever, ever will you go to the cross. I won't let you. And Jesus, smelling the stench of the breath of hell on that one, pointed at Peter and he said, get behind me what? Satan, that was a source. And I don't know what Peter did, but if it was me, I'd go crawl under a rock and just try to decay in peace. <laughs> Peter fell hard. And the Lord ends that chapter giving them a lecture about seeking God's prerogatives, not man's. Six days later, chapter 17, what happens? Jesus comes looking for Peter to take him to the mountain of transfiguration. Peter falls hard. Jesus restores him and puts him in the place of blessing. After the three denials of Peter gave the Lord, when the Lord rose again from the dead, the first guy he comes looking for is Peter to restore him. Peter falls hard. He's sifted by Satan. Jesus comes after Peter and restores Peter. Do you see a pattern here? Same thing that happens here. You know, guys, I, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. This, this chapter is not about that Jesus is easy on sin. It cost him his life. It's not about that. He demands our obedience. In John 14, 15, he says, if you guys really have a deep affection for me, what? You're going to do what I say, right? You're going to be obey my commandments. That's, that's not the point of this thing. But what is the point is that when his, he demands obedience, but it breaks his heart when his own don't repent when they sin and come back to the place of restoration and blessing because that's what he's after. You know, I've talked to a lot of people that don't feel as though they qualified for the grace of Christ. Especially, I've talked to a lot of Christians who have failed miserably after coming to Christ. And they feel like they, they don't qualify and, and that they're estranged from God, they're beyond the pale of grace when they don't recognize that Jesus qualifies to restore them. And that's his heart. Not to keep us in the outer edges of disfellowship, but to bring us in and embrace us fully. That's his heart. Because his is a persevering grace. You know, Peter came back, right? Was this the last time that Peter failed magnanimously? There was a whole incident. We won't go into it except to say in the church, the burgeoning church in Antioch, which was half Gentile, half Jewish. He went up there to check the grace of God, and he saw what God was doing. He said, oh, man, this is an actual work of God's grace and he ate with the Gentiles and he fellowshiped with them and he worshiped with them and gave them the attaboy, you know, pat in the back. And then a group of Judaizers came up from Jerusalem and Peter, fearing his reputation with the Jews, withdrew from the Gentiles and Paul called him out on it to his face in front of the whole church. He said, if you being a Jew lived like a Gentile, what are you doing telling the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's crazy. He was communicating, Peter was, there's two classes of Christian. First class being Jewish, second class being Gentiles. And that was an affront to the gospel of grace. Peter fell hard. But you know what? It was the same Peter 
who at the end of his life was given a choice. The Romans said, you can deny Christ and live or you can affirm Christ and die. And he chose to affirm Christ, his faith in Christ, rather than to deny the, the Lord who saved him. And he was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner his Lord had died. Same Peter. Same guy that blew it in all those instances, but died a martyr's death gladly. Why? Because the grace of Christ perseveres. It's our story, people. It's our story. You know, the Bible is just a a story of God's redemptive work set up against the dark and contrasting background of great sinners, people like you and me, prostitutes, murderers, thieves, liars, cowards, all of them renewed and restored by the Savior. So where are you this morning? Are you having breakfast with the Lord of glory? You enjoying his fellowship? That's what life is all about. Love it, live it. But maybe you're on a boat when you should be on shore. Maybe life has just drifted you away from Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in high-handed sin and you need to repent of it. Know this, Christ his arms, has his arms extended out to you, welcoming you back and able to restore you to the place of fellowship and blessing. If you would but repent and return. That's what he wants from his children, little ones. Or maybe today, you, you're not even in a boat. You're out in the middle of the sea. You've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've never accepted his work on the cross. He came to earth, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death. That is, he carried our sins upon himself on the cross, suffered the wrath of God, died, rose again so that he could call you child. You can have that today. If you reach out to him in faith, believing that he is who he is and did what he did. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing truth of your word, the simple but profound and life-changing truth that your grace perseveres and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, is, is persevering. Lord, there's no sin that we can commit no thought that we can think that would ever cut the efficacy, the, the availability of forgiveness of sins away from you and from your son. So I pray right now, this morning, as we get ready to uh, take the Lord's table, that, Lord, you would draw people into fellowship with yourself, that we would confess our sins to you and partake anew of this table which has cost you so much, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at cupgrace.org slash Menifee.